You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so we're going to start by memorizing a verse together. Are we up for it? All right, let's do it. So look at verse uh, 31, and I'm going to get you to repeat after me. We're, we're going for it. We're going to memorize this verse. It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's, it's a verse that's easy to memorize, and I just want to encourage you to make sure this one's tucked in your back pocket, tucked in that, that memory bank uh, that you have at your disposal at all times. 1 Corinthians 10, 30, uh, 31. You can repeat after me. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's go for it again. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's start with that word so. That word so is a connector, right? So anytime you see the word so or therefore in the Bible, you know that it's connecting what was said to what's about to be said. Yeah, so that, that word so is connecting verse 31 back to the previous uh, parts that we've just been working through and, and reading. So, and then he says, whether you eat or drink. Now, th that phrase is helping us see what exactly it's connected to. How far back does uh, th that word so uh, connect us? Uh, and it's showing that it's not just the preceding paragraph or the preceding verse. It's really the preceding section. Uh, what you have in verse 31 is the summary statement for this section of the letter. So uh, let's for a moment just zoom out of this letter, 1 Corinthians uh, for a moment. And let's see this letter in its five sections. There's five broad sections that make up uh, the 15 chapters of 1 Corinthians. Section 1 is chapters 1 through 4. And it's about uh, division within the church. That, that's chapters 1 through 4. Then you get section two. It's chapters five through seven, th those three chapters. And it deals with our sexuality, with sexual immorality. Uh, it deals with uh, singleness, with marriage, those types of things. Then you get to section four. So that's section one and two. Then you get to section four. It's chapters 11 through 14. We're going to start that section next week. And it's dealing with the church when it gathers together. Uh, what happens there? Uh, how is that supposed to go down? That, that's 11 through 14, section four. Then you get to section uh, five, and that's uh, 1 Corinthians 15. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus. Just a beautiful, amazing chapter about the resurrection. But for the last month or so, uh, the last several weeks, we have been working through uh, section three, which is chapters eight through 10. So chapters eight, nine, and 10, that's section three, right in the middle of, of this letter. And Paul introduces section three in chapter eight, verse one. And this is the way he introduces it. He says, now concerning food offered to idols. This section is all about food offered to idols. That, that's what he is addressing in this section. Now, why is he addressing food offered to idols? Well, Corinth was a pagan city. And like most cities in the ancient world, they worshiped many gods in many temples. And as part of their worship, they would sacrifice animals uh, to their gods. And part of the animal would be burned right there on the spot to the God that they were worshiping. Part of the animal would be served in the temple. Temples functioned like uh, our 21st century restaurant. If you're going to go out to eat on a Friday night in Corinth, you're probably going to a temple to eat. That, that's where it's going to happen. So part of the uh, animal would be served in the temple. And then part of it would be uh, taken to the market and it would be sold uh, there in the market. So you could go buy meat in the market, take it home and eat meat at your house. 
right? This is the context that, that uh, this church was sort of living in. And the raging debate in the church in Corinth was, can we eat that meat that's sacrificed to idols? Is that doable? Does Jesus permit that? Is it faithful to Jesus? Is it not faithful to Jesus? And so when Paul says in verse 31, so whether we eat or drink, he is, he's connecting what he's about to say to the whole of this section. It is the summary statement, uh, 10, chapter 10, verse 31, of this whole section of the letter. Chapter 8, 9, and 10, what Paul wants to say is about to be summarized right here in this verse. So, whether you eat or drink, and then notice the next phrase, or whatever you do. And I love that because in that phrase, Paul is broadening the scope of what he's about to say. He's saying, yes, this is the summary of uh, these last couple of chapters, but really it's bigger than just this particular issue of food offered to idols. This is the way I want you to see the whole of your life. Not one particular area of your life. No, verse 31 is going to apply to every area of your life, whatever you do. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself this question? Why do I exist? What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? Why has God given me this week or this year? What is the purpose of my life? These are the mega questions of life. And here's the thing about these huge questions of life. It doesn't matter what else you get right in your life if you get these wrong. When these are off, when these questions are answered wrongly, everything else is going to be off the rails in our life. These are the most important questions of life. And if you've ever asked those questions, why do I exist? What's the purpose of my life? Here is your place to go for the Bible's answer. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I love this verse because in it, Paul points us to our purpose. Do all to the glory of God. Welcome to the reason that you exist. Why God is giving you today, this week, this year. Do all to the glory of God. The Westminster uh, Catechism, I, I love it's the first question of that shorter catechism. It says, what is the chief end of man? What, what is the purpose of man? What's the chief end of man? What, what is the reason that, that human beings exist? What is the chief end of man? Its answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the reason you exist. Uh, this, this means, by the way, the purpose of your life is not about you. The, the more you think the, the reason you exist, the purpose of your life is about you, the more you will be enslaved to a million sins. No, the purpose of your life is not about you. The reason you exist is not about you. The reason you exist, the purpose of your life is about God. And the sooner you see that's the purpose of your life, your life will then begin to open up. Your life will then open up in all these beautiful ways. You'll be more free. You'll be more glad-hearted. You'll be more of all of those things the more you see the purpose of your life. It's not about you. It's about God. So can we say it together now? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I want to take that last phrase, do all to the glory of God, and just think that last phrase through with you today. Do all to the glory of God. I want to answer two questions about that phrase. What does it mean? 
And then how do we do it? What does it mean? How do we do it? So here's first question. What does it mean? What does it mean to do all to the glory of God? You know, that, that phrase can feel a little bit abstract and theoretical. So, so I want to make sure it's down on the ground for us where we can see what, what does that mean? So let's start with God. To, to glorify God, we first got to get the God part right. So, so let's take the word God. God, according to the scriptures, is the greatest being in the universe. That's who God is, the greatest being in the universe. According to the scriptures, he's the most beautiful being in the universe. This is part of why he's so great. According to the scriptures, he's the most trustworthy being in the universe. This is why he's so great, right? He's the most loving and gracious being in the universe. He's the most just being in the universe. He's the most satisfying and enjoyable being in the universe. This, this is God. This is the greatness of God. That, that's God. And glorifying God means showing the greatness of God. That's what it means to glorify God. It means that, that you're showing just how great God is with your life and your lips. It's showing the greatness of God. So when Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, he is saying your life is designed to be, um, think of it this way, like a window. This is what your, your life is designed to be. This is the purpose of your life. It's to be like a window. Windows aren't meant to be looked at, but to be looked through. That's the purpose of your life, to be looked through, not to be looked at. Not, not to, to look at the world and say, hey, world, would you please look at me the window? Would you please obsess over me, world? Uh, th this thing is about me, so please, world, look at me. That's not what your life is designed to be. Your life is designed to be a window. Your goal isn't to be seen, but to be seen through. Your goal is to enable people to see the awesomeness of God, the greatness of God. That's what it means to glorify God. This is the design of your life is to be seen through so that people can see God. God has designed your life to be a means of making an invisible God visible. That making an invisible God seen and felt and known by the world. That is the design of your life, the reason you exist. Paul's saying that, that you, with your life, you get to show that God is the greatest being in the universe. That you, with your life, you get to show that God is the most beautiful being in the universe, that he is the most trustworthy being in the universe. He is the most loving and gracious being in the universe, that he is the most satisfying and enjoyable being in the universe, that you with your life get to do that. That's why you exist. That's the reason God is giving you today, that God is giving you this week, that God is giving you this year. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. I, I love that. Paul, Paul doesn't just point us to our purpose. He fills every last crack and crevice of our life with purpose. He says, whatever you do, whatever. So in your marriage or singleness or at your work or with your friends or in a moment of conflict or in your parenting or when you're hanging out with your neighbors or on Sunday or on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday, in every moment of your life, the big moments and the small moments, 
the, the crazy moments of your life and the very mundane moments of your life that nobody will see. He's saying, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That, that every moment of your life is packed with purpose because in every single little moment of your life, you can be the window where you are seen through all the way to the greatness of God. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, that does beg the question. I want to just slow down here and, and ask the question of you. Is this the way you see your life? That the reason I have this week, it's not so I will be seen. It is so that I will be seen through. So that I can be a faithful image bearer showing the greatness of my God. Is this the way you see your life? That, that every single little area of your life is about the glory of God. There, there, there is no area of your life that it's like, oh, this is, this is where I glorify God. But, but these areas, uh, they don't have to really have God mixed into to these things. No, no, Jesus is saying, whatever you do, it's, it's all of your life. This is every moment of your life, every day of your life, big, small crazy, mundane. It is about the glory of God. Every single part of your life. Do you see your life that way? Jesus in it all, in every little crack and crevice of your life. If not, Paul, the scriptures in this text, is wanting to reorient the way you see your life. Reframe the way you see your life. That in every single little part of your life, it is packed with purpose the purpose is to glorify God, to be that window that is seen through, that in whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Can you say it with me again? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do we do that? How do we do all to the glory of God? What does that mean? If that's the purpose of our life, how do we accomplish that? Now, that is a massive question. That, that's a question that we could do a set of sermons on uh, because th there are many ways to answer it. There's many things that we can do to glorify God. There's so many things that we could say about it. Uh, as a, maybe a guiding sort of principle and as an overarching view of that, I, I love how we describe what we do around here. We just have a simple phrase to say it. We enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. That's what we do around here. And I love that phrase because it is pointing us to the central way that we glorify God. That we glorify God by enjoying God. John Piper is right when he says, God is most glorified in us. So if we, we want to glorify God, God is most glorified us when we are most satisfied in him. So, so the more joy you have in Jesus, the more glory you bring to Jesus. So, so we talk about that a lot. This is the central way that we glorify God is by finding our heart's delight in God, the satisfaction of our heart in God, our joy in God. When we find our joy in Jesus, we are giving glory to Jesus. Uh, parents, if you want a great resource to disciple your kids uh, in your home, I just could not recommend highly enough the New City Catechism. It's just a simple question and answer to teach good theology in the context of your families. I would so recommend you grab, uh, we've got little uh, free uh, resource books for it. You can get the app online. I, I would just so encourage you to get, to get that, uh, that resource. 
And here's question number six of the New City Catechism. If you've been working your kids through the New City Catechism, then they're going to know the answer to the question, how do we do this? How, how do we glorify God? Question number six is that. How do we glorify God? Number six, here's its answer. We glorify God by enjoying him, by loving him, by trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and laws. So th there are hundreds of ways that could play out in a human life. Uh, we could do that through generosity. We could do that through how we handle conflict. We can do that in our parenting. We can do that in the way we repent and confess our sin. We can, there's just a thousand different ways that we can glorify God with our life. But this passage points us to two ways in particular. This text, verse 31, is connected to two ways of glorifying God. And let me just work through these two ways that this text shows us we can glorify God. The first way is that we can glorify God by giving God our loyal love. This is one way you glorify God, by giving God your loyal love. That's the positive way of saying verse 14. Verse 14 is stated in a negative way. Here's how Paul says verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Flee, that's a present imperative, that, that command. And here's what a present imperative means in the Bible. Uh, it means that it's not going to be a one-time action in our life, but a lifelong action in our life. This isn't something that a Christian does like once in their life. It is something they're doing every day in their life. Flee from idolatry. Every day. Flee from idolatry. This is how we glorify God, by, by fleeing from idolatry. Or we could say it in a positive way, by giving God our loyal love. Flee from idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, here's Paul's language to describe idolatry in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. It's going to be on the screen for you. Here's how Paul talks about idolatry. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Okay, that is idolatry. That's what he's talking about in Romans 1. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So here's how we could think about idolatry according to Paul, in Paul's language. Idolatry is misdirected worship. It's misdirected worship. So let's, let's take a deep dive in that word worship for a moment. What does that mean, that word worship in the scriptures? Well, the scriptures show us that human beings are hardwired for worship. And so often when we hear that word worship, I worry that we have a truncated, kind of a small view of that word. Because uh, it's most often used in our context as what we do when the church gathers together and we sing to Jesus. And, and that is an expression of worship, but that's, that's not all the Bible means when it says the word worship or it's talking about worship. Uh, that word worship comes from an old Latin word that means worth-ship. That would be a good way to think about the word worship. It's worth-ship. It's, worship is, is what we do when we ascribe ultimate worth to something. That, that's what worship is in the Bible. And humans are hardwired to ascribe ultimate worth to something. We, we can't exist without worshiping, without having something in our life that we're looking at and saying, that is greatness. That is where the awesomeness is. This is what is most great in the universe right here. We, we, human beings are always doing that. We are hardwired to ascribe ultimate worth to something. God has put in us these deep longings for significance. 
for satisfaction and joy, for security and safety. He's put on us these deep longings for that. And whatever you direct those longings toward, this is how I'm going to be significant. This is how I'm going to be satisfied in my life. This is how I'm going to be safe and secure in my life. Whatever you're directing those longings for in your life, you are worshiping according to the Bible. You are ascribing ultimate worth to whatever you're attaching those longings to in your life. You're, you're worshiping the, that thing. Now, let's tie this together now. So here's how the Bible sees it. When those longings are directed to God, the Bible considers that right worship. You're, you're ascribing ultimate worth to the right thing. God is the, the object of all of those deep longings that he has put inside of you. But whenever those longings are directed at something other than God, the Bible calls that idolatry. It's misdirected worship. Uh, this is question 17 of the New City Catechism. So if you've been working your kids to the New City Catechism, they're going to be a step ahead of you when we get to this question of idolatry. Question 17 asks that. What is idolatry? Here's its answer. Idolatry, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness for our significance and security. That, that's idolatry in the scriptures. And once we see what idolatry is, it's that misdirected worship, di directing our deep longing to something other than God, then we can understand what an idol is. An idol is the object of our wrong worship. It's a counterfeit God in our life. It's the particular thing that we're attaching our longings and hopes to. Uh, Tim Keller, when he answers the question, what is an idol? He says it this way. It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can. That's an idol in our life. Now, here's what makes um, idols so tricky. They aren't always bad things, right? When we think of the word idol, we'd be like, oh, there's an obvious one. It's that, it's that terrible thing. But most often, they're not bad things. Idols in our life are most often good things that we have turned into God things. Good things that we've, we've inflated in our life demanding that they give us what only God can give us. Idols are most often those types of things, good things, that we inflate into God things. Now, why is that? Why are they most often good things? Well, just think about your life. Uh, most people don't believe that black tar heroin will satisfy the deepest aches of their soul. I doubt you believe that. I, I doubt there's anyone in here who believes that is really going to do it for the deepest places of my heart. But people by the millions believe that marriage will, that kids will, that, that, that this particular career, if I could just have that career, it, it will, that if I could just have that new house, that, that it will. If I, could, if I could just have this, this new thing, if I could just have more money, if, 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 that, that'll do it for me. Or sex will. Or maybe even ministry will. If I could just, if I could just do that with my life, th then I would really have all that my heart wants. It's the good things in our life that most often become the God things in our life. That, that we most often look at demanding they give us what only God can. And John Calvin is right when he says part of what it means to be a fallen human beings is that we are now idol factories. Our heart is just producing idols left and right. 
our, our heart is prone to wonder. It's just prone to, to redirecting our worship, what we're ascribing ultimate worth to, away from God to something else, to, to this thing, to that thing. It's just our hearts are so prone to do that, to ascribe ultimate worth to something that's not God. And Paul in this text is saying, no. Don't do that. Give God your loyal love. Flee from idolatry. Don't, don't give your love, your trust, your worship to idols. Give your love, your trust, your worship to God and God alone. Now, in our text this morning, Paul's working out the issues around idolatry and food. That's kind of what he's doing in this text. But, but I want to show you some sobering truths that Paul shows us about idolatry. Look at verse 19. Paul says, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, he says. That's not what I'm saying. Paul is saying, listen, there, there's only one real God. There are no other gods. So whatever idol you have out there, it's not God. There's, o- there's only one God. And then he goes on in verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let me just point out two observations there. One, I just want you to see, to, to see and notice Paul's logic. He's saying that, that listen, idols aren't anything. Idols aren't like rivaling God. There is no such thing as another God. There there is one God in the universe, right? So, So idols aren't anything. But he's saying, when we engage in idolatry, we are pulling a chair up and we are dining at the table with demons. That's what we're doing when we engage in idolatry. We're making room for Satan and his schemes in our life. But Paul is just alerting us that this is spiritual warfare 101. Flee idolatry. Give God your loyal love. Uh, most of us know Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a very popular, well-known verse in the Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yes and amen to that. God has a, a plan for your life. He does have a wonderful, good plan for your life. And Satan has a plan for your life. There's two plans for your life. God has one and Satan has one. Here's Satan's plan for your life. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's Satan's plan for your life. How can I absolutely destroy everything in them? And here is Satan's primary way to go about stealing in your life, killing in your life, and destroying in your life. His primary way to do that is by seducing your heart to other lovers. This is what he's up to in your life today. Just just moving God out of that central place in your life and putting anything else in there. And listen, he doesn't care if it's black tar heroin or if it's marriage. Either one of those are great with, with Satan. As long as it's not God in the ultimate place in your life, as long as you're ascribing ultimate worth to something other than God, Satan is happy. Satan wants your loyal love to be given to anything other than God. And when we say yes to idols, we are saying yes to the very plans of Satan for our life, to steal, to kill, and destroy. 
Man, that's sobering, isn't it? There's a lot at stake with us fleeing idolatry. And then notice the question in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? That is Paul saying, friend, that there is not enough room in your heart for both Jesus and idols. There's not enough room. Idolatry is the equivalent of a married woman running after dozens of other lovers. And just like that would break the heart of any husband, it breaks the heart of God, our husband, who he has pledged his loyal love to us and we have pledged our loyal love to him. But in idolatry, it is the act of spiritual adultery. So, so Paul says, are we, are we gonna provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we gonna break the Lord's heart in this way? I love how the message uh, paraphrases verse 21. Eugene Peterson says, you can't have it both ways, banqueting with the master one day and slumming with demons the next. You can't have it both ways. Are we going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? So friend, can we just slow down here and ask the question, what are you ascribing ultimate worth to in your life? What is competing for the affections of your heart? But what has crept into the place that should be reserved for God alone in your life? This is one way we glorify God. It's by giving God our loyal love. And here's the second way this text shows us that we glorify God. We glorify God by giving others our sacrificial love. You know, in a lot of ways, when Paul is answering the question, how do we glorify God? He is using the first and second, the two greatest commandments, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give God your loyal love and love others. This is what he's showing us. This is how we glorify God. We, we, and he, by the way, he shows us two ways we can love others in this text. One way we can love others is by building them up. You see this in verses 23 and 24. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's another two-verse little section of scripture that would be so good to memorize. When it comes to decision-making in our life, here's the first question that we always have. Does Jesus permit this? This is what Paul means when he says all things are lawful. He's saying there, there are a lot of things in my life that Jesus permits, that Jesus says, yes, you can enjoy these things. You can do these things. There is freedom in this area. So, and by the way, this is one way that we give God our loyal love. We allow him to create the boundaries in our life. But when he says we can do it, okay. When he says we can't do it, we agree with Jesus in this area. That's one way we give God our loyal love. What Jesus says wins. Right? This is one question we need. Does Jesus permit this? But in our decision-making, we need more than that first question. We need more than, does Jesus permit this? We need a second question. And here's the second question we need. Will this build others up? Is this good for other people? Will this serve other people? And this is the point Paul's been making uh, over this section of this letter, over the last three chapters. His po the point of chapter eight is for Paul to say, listen, church, sacrificial love is greater than the enjoyment of your freedoms. It is greater than the enjoyment of your freedoms. Just like your love for Jesus will limit your liberty, there are things that I won't do because I love Jesus. He's saying so too should your love of others limit your liberty. That there are things that are technically permissible. You are free to do as a Christian that you're choosing not to do because you want to build others up and this would not be edifying and build others up. This would not be good for them. It would not serve them. 
Paul's saying you also need that question. Will this build up and serve other people? Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians, the issue is meat offered to idols. And Paul is saying, listen, if me eating a ribeye will cause others, like my friends, to, to stumble and to fall, then I will sacrifice my freedom for my friend. Paul's saying, I will go vegan. That is true love, isn't it? I mean, Paul is, Paul is loving his friends in this moment. No, no to ribeyes for Paul. But, but just as an act of sacrificial love to his friend. Now, now, why is that? Because for Paul, sacrificial love is greater than freedom. Now, ask yourself the question. Does your love for other people take you to those places? That, that you're willingly receiving some limits on your life that you could otherwise enjoy because you love Th th this person, because I love my, my wife, my, my husband, because I love this friend, because I love my kids, because I love these people. I'm willingly going to limit myself to only those things that will build them up. Can you find those moments in your life? Just be, be reflective about it. this is how we glorify God. Can you find those ways that you're doing that in your life? And let me just remind you, friend, that you, you will never be more like Jesus than when you let love set limits to the liberty of your life. This is one way we get to be like Jesus. We get to be that window that we're seen through all the way to Jesus. Think about Jesus. It's Jesus from this heart of love that limited himself by taking on human flesh. God became a baby boy. That is Jesus letting love set limits to his liberty. He became a baby boy. He, he lived a sinless life, 33 years. Then he gave his life, the ultimate act of sacrificial love. And friend, you become that window through which Jesus is seen when you love other people like that with sacrificial love, limiting your freedom by love. This is one way you, you become more like Jesus. You show Jesus in your life. We love others by building them up. And then Paul says, we love others by bending for their rescue. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greek or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage. Paul's like, I'm not living for me here. But, but here's what I'm doing. But that of many that they may be saved. I love that text. You can see in it the way Paul sees his life. This is a man who was giving his days to help others love Jesus and be saved by Jesus. That was the goal of his life. How can I help others love Jesus? And how can I help others be, be rescued and saved by Jesus? Then Paul says in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is saying, this is how Jesus lived. Why did Jesus come to seek and save the lost? Paul's saying, why am I here? What am I doing with my life? That they may be saved. I'm seeking and saving the lost just like Jesus. And then Paul's inviting us to live like Jesus and to live life like him. To, to give our life to see others meet Jesus. To let love lead us to a life of rescue. I agree with one commentator when he says that the number one ambition in the heart of every follower of Jesus, Jesus should be the last five words of verse 33, that they may be saved. You, you might just underline that, that phrase, that they may be saved. And then just plead with the God to make that the ambition of your life.
to ask God to give you a heart that would stay up weeping over that text, praying over that text, that they may be saved. Do you love people like this? Can you see in your life a sacrificial love of others? And I'll finish here. Friend, one day, sooner than you think, your life is going to come to an end. Can you just go there in your mind's eye with me for a minute? Just imagine that, that moment where you are in the final little season of your life, the final few moments of your life. And I, I don't know what you want to be able to say in that moment, but here's what I want to be able to say. I, I want to be able to say with Paul that I have fought the good fight, that I have finished the race, that I have kept the faith. I want to be able to say with Paul that I've given my days to the things that matter most. That the most important things in the universe were were the most important things to me in my life. I, I want to be able to say that at the end of my life. Don't you want to be able to say that? That the most important things were what was most important to me. And if you want to say that, Paul is showing us the way. And here is the way, friends. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Would you bow with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful. That means your life is not about you. It's about God. Every part and piece of your life is about the glory of God. Are you giving your loyal love to Jesus? What's competing? with Jesus for the affections of your heart? Where today do you need to obey the command, flee from idolatry? Where does repentance need to show up in your life today? Glorify God by giving others our sacrificial love. Can you find that sacrificial love in your life? If not, Jesus is asking you to repent today, to come back home to him, to acknowledge those things before him, to to plead with him for a heart that really could limit your freedom, your liberty by love, that, that would view sacrificial love as more important than you enjoying every freedom that Jesus gives you in your life. So, Father, would you help us see these things today? Holy Spirit, would you convict us of sin? Would you show us where idols have crept into our life? Would you give us a heart to turn from those things and to come back home to you, O God?
So Father, as we sing Jesus at the center of my life, I pray that it would be sung from our heart as a prayer to you, oh God. And it's in the great name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.